Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving from us versus them to we all belong. In this episode, we chat with Alexandra Hudson about her new book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. This book explores the difference between politeness and what Hudson calls civility, and we call civity, truly seeing another person and recognizing their humanity and dignity. Alexandra is also founder of Civic Renaissance, a space dedicated to elevating our public discourse. Welcome, Alexandra. You're focusing on getting people to connect and see each other. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what led you to wanting to explore this issue? Well, I was uh, introduced to this topic very early in my life. I came to my interest in this topic about social norms and the joint project of living well with others honestly. My mother is called Judy the Manners Lady. She is uh, an internationally renowned expert on etiquette and manners, and she is zealous about the human social project um, and, and, and zealous about manners to the extent that they support us living well together across deep difference, uh, which is the, the the most important question of our day and the topic of my book. Um, I hate rules. I hate being told what to do. But um, my mother promised me that these rules of politeness and etiquette would serve me well in work and school and life. And so I followed them and they she was right until I got to the United States Department of Education. I was in federal government during a very divisive time. And when I was in government, I saw these two extremes. On one hand, I saw people who were polished and suave and um, and, and and polite, but but they were um, ruthless and cruel. They would smile at me one moment and stab me in the back the next. And on the other hand, I saw people who were hostile and bullies and coercive, and willing to you know elbow anyone in order to get ahead. And at first, um, these two extre- extremes really disillusioned me, and they I thought they were polar opposites. But um, upon reflection, I, I saw that they are actually very similar. Both modes instrumentalize others. One mode sees people as pawns to be manipulated, the other as pawns to be bullied and bowled over to get ahead. And this experience clarified for me the difference between civility and politeness. Politeness is etiquette, manners, it's technique, it's behavior, uh, it's external. Civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart that doesn't bully people or manipulate people, but respects them by virtue of our shared personhood and dignity. And that crucially, sometimes uh, respects enough to be impolite, telling a hard truth, engaging in robust debate. So a core argument of the book is that we need to disentangle these concepts. We know as a society what we want more of, what we want less of, and that we need less faux politeness and more true civility. uh, Politeness at its best can perfect smooth over differences. It can, you know, take off the roughness of dialogue and and exchanging across difference. But at its worst, it can manipulate. It can be a tool to silence and suppress. 
and and we things are we're at a very divided moment and and we have too many important conversations to have to be worried about silencing and and, and tone policing which is the purview of of politeness we need more true civility actually respecting others enough to have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. I appreciate that. You know, it's civility as you know, we're very much what you call civility, we we call civity. And and it is that, you know, seeing each other's humanity, being honest with each other. You said your mother was very interested, you know, she's this world-renowned etiquette expert um and manners were all important to her. So I'm curious if you had an opportunity to talk with her about these ideas and how your view of politeness has become more nuanced and moved into this space and how she's responded. <laughs> we talk about it all the time. She's on book tour with me. I'm I'm uh, I'm traveling around the world with my two kids, Sophia Margot is one and a half and Percival James almost four. And my mom is coming with me and my husband's joining as as his work schedule permits. But so we talk about it all the time and she's always helping me clarify and refine um, and improve. And I think she and most people have kind of intuited this distinction, like they're everyone's aware of um, of people who can seem nice but actually turn out to be a little bit underhanded. Uh, it's a whole trope in literature and pop culture. In pop culture, they call it the affable villain, the person who, uh, or the or the sophisticated villain. You know that the urbane and and like the Hannibal Lecter, for example, he listens to Mozart and has hand paintings of Florence while he's flaying people alive, right? Like being polished and suave and well-spoken well and refined is not a substitute for character. It's always fun. She's always a great resource, always a wealth of wisdom and an amazing encouragement. She's my number one fan. And sometimes she's torn between helping with the kids and, you know, capturing every moment. She's just so delighted, you know, for, for me to be writing about this. It's like her, um, we've, yeah, we, 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 uh, we talk about this a lot. That's great. That's awesome. Well, you know, you, you brought up the idea of, um, the polite villain and all of the terrible things that can be done under the guise of politeness. And the first thing that came to my mind was, I'm not sure if you ever watched, Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, but he did do this bit uh, where he was talking about this very issue with relation to sexual assault. And he was a very polished, you know, man saying horrible things, but in a very polite, nice way. And then he he played a crass character who was actually being respectful of women, but sounded very crass. You know, I think, like you said, in, in the U.S. or maybe in a lot of places, we grow up and this stuff is internalized and we start to feel it. We're starting to feel this need for something else, having trouble defining it. And so I think you and Civity and all of us talking about it can help everybody put a name to it and start to navigate this. I completely agree that the difficulty right now is that we have these two two groups, these two contingents. On one hand, there's a contingent that says, we just need to talk nicely together. We need more civility and politeness in public life. We They hearken back even to this golden age, you know, often it's the 1940s, 1950s uh, that may have had less polarization, but we were also at war, at war, and it was also a very unequal time in 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 our in our country's history. So it's not like that is a unilateral, like monolithic golden age. Um, and 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 then there's this other contingent that says no. They, that civility and politeness, we need less in society. They're, they're a tool of the patriarchy, of white supremacists, of people in positions of power to silence and keep the powerless powerless. We need less civility and politeness in public life. And my concern is that both contingents 
fail to meaningfully distinguish distinguish between these two modes, civility and politeness. They don't they don't recognize the difference. And again, um, I love etymology. Etymology is throughout my book the story and the history behind our language and our words and the etymology of our words civility and politeness supports this distinction. The Latin root of politeness is polière, which means to smooth or polish. And that's what politeness means and does and means. It, it, it's superficial. It's external. It papers over difference as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on, to thrive amidst difference. If you're suppressing difference, you're not, you're not thriving amidst difference, you know. Um, the Latin root for civility is kivitas, which is the Latin, the, the root for our word for citizen, city, civilization, and citizenship. And that is that civility is the duties and the habits befitting a citizen in the city that often, and especially in a democracy, requires having those robust de- 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 debates and, and telling hard truths. And so those that claim that civility and politeness are tools of the patriarchy and people in positions of power, what they accurately see is that they mean politeness, like politeness and social norms and, and, and propriety. Those have been a tool of suppressing and silencing and manipulating and saying, oh, that's not polite. Like we don't do marches here. We don't do sit-ins here. We don't do letter writing for campaigns. Just like, you know, know your place and, 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 and don't ruffle any feathers, right? But civility by contrast, like I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience. In, in this in this tradition that sometimes it's the duty of citizenship to protest injustice in our social norms and, and broader culture and in our laws when our regime is complicit in in injustice and subjugating you know one group of people over over another unlike how the, this these groups you know conflate civility and politeness I disentangle them and say actually civility is this imp- important tool for social progress and thriving amidst deep difference which is what we need now more than ever we also love etymology civity is also from that Latin root yes Civ- yeah. absolutely yeah and the idea of seeing each other's humanity and also seeing humanity and understanding your own privilege I think sometimes people who stay in the polite space, as you say, in the 40s, some people are looking at this as a golden age because they might have had it, you know, pretty good, or their their ancestors may have had it pretty good. But um, the idea of people who maybe have been more marginalized or uh, not necessarily as uh, accepted into the we of our community um, are not looking for that. They're looking for this civ, this civity, this you know what you call civility to have those tools to disagree, have those tools to be a part of the. Uh, the community moving forward. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So my book is about the most important question of our day, the question that civity is dedicated to as well, which is how do we flourish? How do we thrive amidst deep difference? We hear it a lot that, oh, we're in the most divided, uncivil, lonely, polarized, isolated, alienated era, you know? And what I what I realized throughout my book is that, yes, this is the most important question of our moment. This is a serious question. There's a reason you exist. The reason There's a reason that I wrote this book right now because this is a serious problem. Uh, this is the most important problem and question of the classical liberal project of democracy, but this is also a timeless problem. This is a timeless human question. This is in many ways the defining human question. How do we overcome our differences and, and, and live cooperatively and peacefully and harmoniously in society with others. And in my book, I talk about that there's this duality to our nature. We're profoundly social as a species. We become fully human in relationship with others. And yet morally and biologically, we are driven to meet our own needs before others. We're defined by self-love. And those two facets of who we are are intention, the social and 
the selfish. That is why friendship, community, civilization, democracy is always fragile. It is never a foregone conclusion because of this duality in our nature. And so it's really comfortable. People love to love things to blame, right? Like if other things are to blame, it's not our responsibility. But, um, you know, the people like to blame Donald Trump. They like to blame Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter, right? Like all these epiphenomena, technological, political changes, political figures um, that are to cause for our division our the, and the division that is causing dysfunction in our in our Congress and in our, in our institutions. Like there's many reasons to be concerned about this. But I invert that and say, you know, don't worry about them. Worry about you. What are you doing to be a part of this of this solution? If we misidentify the root cause, we're not never going to grapple with it. This 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 challenge appropriately. And and I think that we need humility um, to to understand that this, this is an intractable problem. There's no question of how do we solve it. It's just how do we live in light of it. What how do we make the most of this lot that we've been given? as the human species. <laughs> you know, it's not there's no magic wand, magic bullet to to make it go away. It's like what do we do in light of the fact that this is the this is who we are, you know, social yet selfish, capable. My favorite my favorite philosopher Blaise Pascal, he said, the human condition is defined by the greatness and wretchedness of man. Those two facets are both part of our nature, greatness and wretchedness, capable of incredible altruism and ingenuity and benevolence, but also capable of atrocity. You know, genocide, utter, utter despair. Even everyday people, right? We hear these stories of the Rwandan genocide and and other, you know, other other atrocities that that, that pepper the historical record of like everyday men and women all of a sudden be complicit in mass murder, right? It's just like there's something deep and dark in the human personality that we all share. It's easy, comfortable to blame epiphenomena like one person, one technology, the other, our neighbor even, or the other other side. And, and and my whole book is about what can you do? What is your role to be part of the solution right now? Yeah. And in the US, we have two genocides as well that we are dealing with the with slavery and with uh, indigenous communities. And so we have it right here. And I appreciate what you're saying about thinking about what we can do. At Civity, we are also worried about seeing humanity and then how do you scale that up? So if we can see each other's humanity, make sure you're actually stopping, noticing, um, treating people, and then also sort of scale that up into the systems that we have. You know, so the idea of uh, technology, social media, uh those may not be to blame, but we can do a better job with the algorithms nudging toward the concepts that you and I are discussing, right? If the algorithms are nudging me toward um, looking at stuff that's divisive and I don't realize that all of a sudden, you know, but but if the algorithms are doing something different, but we as people, if we can see each other's humanity, then together we can demand and and push on our leaders to help change our systems that we live under, live in, or live within. This is really the defining question. Um, what what are we doing about it? You know, it's easy. Again, it's easy. It's comfortable to complain, but that's the beauty of our democracy. Exactly what you said. That we are the citizen is prior to the state. The citizen is prior to the regime. And if, if we and politicians and even our news media, they only do what we as citizens reward. You know, if we're rewarding it with our hate clicks and our eyeballs and our and our time. And our, and our attention or our votes, like that's feeding into this vicious cycle. Uh, a, a core message of my book is that we, are, we have far more power than we realize to be part of the solution. And I hope that every reader who takes the time to pick up my book walks away with a reinforced sense of agency. I learned this firsthand when I left government, a very divided, very divisive um, moment. I came home from work one day and I said to my husband, I'm done with government. I'm done with D.C., 
let's move to Indiana. And he said, okay, done. No take backs. And Indiana <laughs> Indiana is where he's from originally. Aww. And we talked about moving there one day and raising our family there. And so we moved to Indiana. We didn't have any friends there. And, and one of my first friends was a woman named Joanna. She came up to me one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna Taft. Would you like to porch with us sometime? Porch with us? And I had never heard the word porch used as a verb before. But we were curious, didn't know many people, so we went to her home that day. And I realized that Joanna is staging this quiet revolution from her front porch. She is she had curated people on her front porch across class, across race, across politics, across geography, not to have a structured conversation across difference, just to inhabit a shared space. That's radical about this moment. You're listening to This Is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Alexandra Hudson, author of The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. You know, on one hand, this is a timeless problem. On the other hand, it is far too easy to curate our everyday lives virtually and in person and not really encounter people we don't want to encounter, right? We could just edit them right out and just like avoid them and have groceries delivered to us. We don't have to encounter difference or the anonymous stranger. And, you know, we're all a little too comfortable and complacent with that. And so that's what's radical about what she did. And She's creating this place for for seeds of trust and friendship to flourish where maybe those conversations can be had across difference at some point down the line. But that's another thing that we lack right now. We lack that basic trust, that friendship that allows us to give people the benefit of the doubt, to assume the best. Instead, we're all running on empty and assuming the worst. And it's 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 terrible for our our democracy depends on deliberative discourse. And it's it's just a mess right now because we lack basic respect, basic trust. And so Joanna, though, what she taught me is that, you know, she recognized that she can't can't change the world. She can't change, you know, what Elon Musk is doing on Twitter with with its, you know, policies. She can't control who's in the White House or even atrocities that are happening across the world. But what she can control is herself. And she is choosing to make her community better and her family stronger right where she is. And that's radical and revolutionary and countercultural in this moment, or again, it's so comfortable to blame. And the reality is we can each do that too. I, I traveled across the country as part of writing this book, and I talked with people with porches and without, who are doing the exact same thing. It's not about the porch. It's about the disposition of civility, of seeing the the other as a human being first and transforming them from the outsider to the insider, stranger into the friend. And and that we can do that too. I I met people who do it from coffee houses, from their front lawns, you know, from from their living rooms, right? Like you don't need, it's not about what you have. It's, It's how you live your life. It's a lifestyle. And that we have, again, we have way more power to be a part of the solution in our everyday than we realize. Yes, I totally agree. And I love Joanne. She's engaging in what we would call civity. Like that is so cool. You mentioned DC and how divisive it was. And I wonder if you could, uh, if you're willing to share an example or two moments that really caused you to be like, oh, I need, this isn't good. I need to get out of here. Wow. I'm all of a sudden the veil is lifted or the egg is cracked on on politeness. Of course, one day uh, a work colleague ha- came up to me and told me I was glowing that day. I looked particularly radiant and, and you know, could I, could I perchance spare some time to help him with a work project? I was happy to help. And I didn't realize that, that he had, uh, was in fact asking me to do the whole project for him. So I, you know, I did that. I uh, was happy to help. But then he took my work, passed it off as his own, and then took like all the credit and took all the meetings and glory like associated with – like I was the one that was prepared for those meetings. So he was like, you know, underprepared. But gone after that were the smiles and the flattery and and the compliments. <laughs> 
it's funny. There's this there's this great um, character in in intellectual history called Lord Shaftesbury. He's really great on like humor, which I think is really important for a free society. Like we're very intolerant of failure, and like we can't laugh anymore. Where we expect this like strange perfectionism. Like, but to create great art and to create a great joke, we have to be able to fail along the way to make a better joke and a better work of art. He has this um, phrase called froth what he would say about my colleague who asked me to do his work, like that he had a frothy mouth, like that he was like full of flattery and that had no substance. There's so many great concepts and and great figures with amazing stories from history that are worth reviving that can help us think more clearly about our current moment. And that's very much the ethos and spirit of, of my book. Like how do we revive the best of the past from across history and across culture from thoughtful people who have thought about this question, how do we flourish across deep difference and how can their wisdom inform us and, and guide us today? So Lord Shaftesbury in that, uh, in that, in that instance that we can um, condemn froth, condemn, condemn politeness, and uh, especially when it's used as a tool to manipulate, which it, which it really often is. And how do we promote a culture that isn't content just seeming good, right, but it actually cares about being good as well, which is what civility is. It gets to the disposition, the motivation behind what you're doing. One solution is for us to find ways to engage in civility and what you call civility in our own lives, to see each other's humanity, to be intentional about that. Um, what are some other things that you would uh, that you recommend or that you would love to see people do uh, to help push us forward? I have a whole chapter in my book on hospitality. Uh, it's in the, the final section of my, my book called Civility in Practice. One thing that's that's different about our current moment, I wouldn't go so far as to say we're less hospitable, but it's really easy. We're not as interdependent as we once were. Today, when we hear the word hospitality, we often think of jets and hotels and fancy vacations. Like when someone goes to get a degree in hospitality, that's what they're going. They're going into the hospitality industry, right? But there is this vibrant uh, tradition uh, ethical tradition across history and culture as hospitality as kindness to the stranger. Welcoming someone into your home, into your life that you don't know could be a threat, but it also could be the spontaneous, you know, joy-filled encounter with someone who was once a stranger and is now, now a friend. For most of human history, staying put was the norm and traveling about was the exception because it was expensive, it was cumbersome, and it was dangerous. Like you carried your money with you if you got robbed or lost it, that was it. You know, like there was not a robust network of hotels and, and, and credit cards that made modes of exchange easy. So if you were a strange person in a strange land and you found yourself in need, you were literally at the mercy of a stranger showing up on a stranger's doorstep and, and saying, can you help me? Can you take me in? And what we see across history and culture from, from ancient Arabia to ancient Greece and, and everywhere in between is there is this, this hospitality of like this ethic of, of welcoming the stranger into your home. And that's the noble and gracious and generous thing to do, even though it's risky and it's mutually risky. So the Latin root of, of hospitality, it gives us our word for hospitality, but also hostility right? Because that's the duality of every exchange of hospitality. It could go really well or it could turn into a hostile takeover, right? Like the guest who never leaves or the host who never lets you leave, right? Like there's, you're, you're united in that mutual vulnerability when 
you do invite someone into your home and do invite someone into your life. And I think a, a challenge with that today is that we are less need ridden. We don't, if a stranger shows up on our doorstep, literally in need, we say, okay, where's the nearest social services that we can send them to, right? Like, because we know that we have a pretty ro- robust welfare state compared to most of human history. And that these, these places do exist for people in need. And it's just not, it's not as common. So we, and, and we know that things like credit cards and, and hotels, you know, expensive hotels exist. So it's like, it's not as if they're going to die if you don't welcome them into your home. And the, our culture really values comfort and it really shuns vulnerability. But we miss out on a lot of beauty in the unexpected and 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 in the vulnerable. And that's why, you know, hospitality is um is beautiful and I think is is way due for a revival and we can all be more hospitable. You can be intellectually hospitable, you can be emotionally hospitable. It's just again the disposition like the disposition of porching, of inviting people into your home, into your life. The home really is a special place. That's one thing about the porch. It's kind of this quasi-public sphere. It's not quite the sidewalk, not quite the intimacy of the living room, but it's an expression of hospitality. And hospitality is a high and noble expression of civility. Um, but but there is something special about welcoming, to your, welcoming people into your into your home. And I, mean, I think we just don't do that anymore. It's uncomfortable. We find a million excuses not to. And I think the pandemic kind of conditioned us out of, you know, being, being social, right? We just kind of, you know, e- even when someone invites us out to their home, I find myself sometimes coming up with a million excuses like, oh, it'd be so nice to just like get into jammies early and have a nice night with the kids. You know, do I really have to get it, you know, get dressed? It's like, that's hard, but we should really do it. We should invite people out more and over more, and we should go when people invite us more. That I think it's 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 an expression of the human, the fallen nature of the human condition. When we when we we kind of self sabotage ourselves, we think we'll be happier if we just you know have a relaxing night in. But we it's like going to the gym. We very rarely regret a night with others. Right? You know, agreed <laughs> exactly. And it's that saying yes, and you come away with it feeling like oh, I've just made a connection that was meaningful, or even if I didn't, I got some energy out of it. Or whatever it may be, but um, but you're right. We have, and I think the pandemic. I see it in my students. I teach at Sonoma State, and I when even when coming back to class, they didn't want to come back into that space because it was a risk. And then as soon as they were there for like three, four weeks, they're like, "Oh yeah, this is better." Well, we're unbelievably adaptive as a species to a fault. You know, we can adapt and adjust to even like hostage situations, right? Like, like, and uh, to really bad and toxic norms. We can, new norms, we can adjust. And we do that to survive, but we're not thriving necessarily, right? So it's like, how do we keep norms and ideals of, of human flourishing and friendship and the high promise of living well together? A big message of my book is that life with others is hard. It is really difficult. It is annoying. It is vexing. It's perplexing. Like people are weird and frustrating, but it's also the highest and best life. It's hard and therefore it's fragile. It's the highest and best life. And it really depends on our everyday decisions, moment by moment, day by day, moment by moment, to consider the needs and well being of others alongside of ourselves. And what's really, speaking of vulnerability, what's vulnerable for me is that, you know, I wrote this book on human flourishing and civility and social norms, restraint of the self for the sake of society. And I fall short every day, right? Like our self-love is like gravity. And no, there's one day going to be at this piece like, oh, look at this woman who wrote this book and look at all these things that she's done, like not living up to her own ideal. Like that's bound to happen, right? Especially this era of like council culture. And it's like, I'm prepared for that because this is part of the point. Like 
like we have to work at it every day and I'm on this journey too. And I invite everyone reading this book to be on this journey with me and to talk about this journey. Like we're only ever going to improve. And I do think we can improve. It'll never be perfect and it's not going to be pretty along the way, but, we're, but it doesn't mean just because we can never achieve it perfectly doesn't mean we throw the baby out the bathwater and stop trying. Stop, stop striving for a perfect equality and harmony and cooperation. We can't. I agree. And I think you can say the same thing about democracy and the idea of we're so adaptable, uh, which is why, we, you know, what we said earlier, all those algorithms and, and all of the social media works on us because we just adapt inside there. But it is to re- it is to like check ourselves, get out, engage and do the work constantly. It will never be done. We always have to look outward, see each other. And and a lot of times if you do that, you can find ways to work together towards something even more beautiful. This thing called life together is is fragile. And the moment we put it on autopilot is the beginning of the end. You know, at, at its core, marriage is in many ways a good metaphor for this because um, marriage at its core is friendship. And the moment you put a marriage on autopilot is the, is the beginning of the end, right? It's like you have to day in, day out work at it, cultivate it, cultivate ourselves. Like my book is really a humanistic manifesto. It is a manifesto of the profound gift of what it means to be human and as we appreciate the humanity in ourselves, we appreciate it in others too, even though those we differ from, even those we don't like, even those who can do nothing for us in return. And that's the hallmark of true civility. How are we treating with respect those people that can never repay us, right? That's the logic of the world. That's the common logic of like, you know, how are we, what are we getting out of this? Like, I'm nice to you. My, my colleague was nice to me because he hoped he was getting some work out of me. And I, you know, I was a sucker and I did it. And, but that's the logic of the world. How are we um, acting differently? How are we acting better and, and more nobly, no, more graciously? So it's, life is fragile. Life is, life is hard. Um, it's the highest and best life. And, 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 and don't give up. Again, we have way more power to be part of the solution than we realize. Thank you to my guest, Alexandra Hudson author of The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, and founder of Civic Renaissance, a space dedicated to elevating our public discourse. Find it at civic-renaissance.com. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. Right, black or white, we all dream about the same.